Hi, welcome to Stories After Midnight. I really appreciate you stopping by and checking out this story. Uh, before we begin, though, I want to give a huge, huge shout out to my YouTube members and the Patreon members that have decided to support this channel financially. I just wanted to let you know that I really, really appreciate it. The story we will be reading today is when I reached terminal velocity, I fell through a rip in the universe into a place that has never known the light of a star by Mantis Shrimp 47 off Reddit. So I hope you really enjoy it. I'll stick around to the end where I tell you to like the video. It takes the average person 450 meters in 12 seconds to reach terminal velocity. The building that I was jumping off of was 500 meters tall to be safe, about the height of the World Trade Center Tower in New York, although it was a whole lot less sturdy than that. 12 seconds feels longer when there's nothing around but the open air. I counted the seconds with single-minded intensity, like I had been trained, refusing to let a single one slip through my fingers. One, two. The moment where my feet left the tower was always the most disorienting. I had done this dozens of times, but there was still that moment of instinctive panic where my lizard brain knew that I was about to become nothing more than a smear of blood and viscera. I was hurtling towards the ground at terminal speed without a parachute, and that sort of fear isn't something that just goes away. I love it, honestly. It's a rush that nothing else can match. Six, seven. I knew I was screaming because of the soreness of my throat, but I couldn't hear it over the sound of my thundering heartbeat. The sky, previously boundless, lost its infinity to the dirt below. Ten, eleven. I could feel something changing, see the wrongness in the wind currents. There was a boom that resonated in my bones, and just before I hit the earth, I shifted just barely out of sync with the rest of the world. 12. Freefall. Let's back up a little. Actually, let's back up a lot. All the way to the beginning. The theory of the Big Bang is, at its core, the idea that everything was created in the debris of an explosion, an explosion that we're still riding the waves of billions of years later. But the thing about explosions, especially cosmic ones, is that they can never quite be predicted. The nothingness that came before was ripped apart to create the building blocks of the world. With that came just a bit too much pressure. Rips formed, tiny in comparison to the vastness of space, like stretch marks across a hip. Our existence has always been fragile, balanced as it is between the lethal cold above and the burning magma below, held in by something as ephemeral as gravity all of it contained between the blip of time that is a universe. Those tears just make it possible for humans to topple the precarious stability and end up somewhere else. Somewhere that has never known the light of a star. One such tear is in the outback of Australia. It was only discovered because of a skydiver with a faulty parachute. He disappeared into thin air and his friend caught it on camera, then somehow managed to make people take it seriously. There's probably more, somewhere in the world, but we haven't found them yet. Everything beyond the tears we call the shade, and by we, I meant me, and the rotating crew of scientists, engineers, and politicians that facilitated my trips into the tear. 
The worst part about the tower was always getting my gear to the top. There wasn't enough room up there for me to get into my suit, so I had to do it on the ground, with the help of about a dozen techs. The suit itself was a combination between a spacesuit and an outfit meant for deep-sea diving, and it weighed 41 kilograms. It was one big piece with no seams, except for the hatch in the back that I stepped in through to reduce the possibility for leaks. It was where I was going. The air was not only toxic, nor just passively deadly. It was going to be actively attacking me. Once the techs had sealed me in and done their checks, I had to lug myself and the suit into the elevator and wait the small eternity it took for the rickety thing to haul itself up the tower. It was made as quickly and safely as possible, but building codes had long since been disregarded. As I got higher and higher up, I could feel the building swaying and hear the tortured groaning of the elevator cables. My muscles were burning from the strain of holding up the suit by the time the doors dinged open. And when I got to the top, they hooked me up to a tether and directed me to stand at the edge of the roof. The tether took up most of the room because of how long it was. Even stacked and coiled up carefully, I was handed a mouse in a small, sealed container, and told to attach the container to the belt around my waist. The mouse probably only had an hour or so worth of air, but that didn't much matter. In all likelihood, it wouldn't survive long enough to suffocate. The lab coats were bustling around with a fervor born of having cool science things to do. They cooed over their shiny machines and only spoke to me when they had to, using the radio in my suit because I couldn't hear anything through the thick fabric of it. They did their best to stay away from me. It was subtle, but I noticed it in the way they kept a foot of distance at all times. The lingering glances, the refusal to turn their backs to me. I was the crazy guy that had willingly gone into the shade dozens of times, and then actually came back. They were scared of me. We had only found one tear, but the mathematicians and astronomers were almost certain that there are more somewhere. They thought that the others might not be located on Earth. They might not even be near Earth. But they did probably exist. The rips, or at least the ones I went through, weren't very cooperative with human science. They didn't exist according to every instrument that got pointed at them. And the only way to access them was inconvenient at best. The thing coming in had to be falling at terminal velocity. It had to be fairly small and there couldn't be a way to stop the fall. If any of those conditions weren't met, the portals just wouldn't open. You would fall straight through the empty air and splatter to pieces on the rocks below. The most interesting part, to the scientists, was that the rip somehow knew if someone had a way to stop their fall. We weren't sure initially why the tether didn't prevent me from going into the shade, but the current working hypothesis is that since the cord isn't strong enough to hold me up or catch me, it doesn't count. It had been tested over and over with dozens of different types of equipment. Gliders, jetpacks, bungee cords, even Spider-Man type web shooters. Every time the tears stayed stubbornly closed, but there seemed to be no way onward. They couldn't exactly throw someone off the building with no way to catch them. At that time, I was working as an intern to the actual scientists, and I very much wanted to jump off the building. I'd always been an adrenaline junkie. I didn't have much to live for anyways, and it sounded like fun. So when the scientists had all gone home for the night, 
I'd grabbed one of the hazard suits and some rope and gear, and a buddy who was just as lacking in common sense as me. At that point, we were drunk as hell, and even when confronted with the long drop down, I was still absolutely ready. My buddy took more convincing, but eventually he came around too, helped along with a couple more beers. We rigged up an amateur pulley system, tied the rope around my chest and the loops of the hazard suit, and then I jumped before I could even think better of it. 12 seconds. That's long enough to realize your stupidity, and almost long enough to regret it. My body was being pulled apart like taffy. My organs were shattering under the weight of infinite dimensions. And then I was in the shade. It's impossible to describe exactly what it's like there. It was the endlessness of the deep ocean, evident in the horizon line between sky and sea. Or maybe the place where lost socks go, or the heartbreak of losing a child, or the thousands quilt squares piled around Grandma's house that she said she'd get to later, or the way midnight coffee just tastes different than morning coffee. It was like nothing I'd ever known before. I was addicted from the very first glimpse. I only caught a peek of it that time, before my buddy saw me blink out of existence, panicked, and pulled on the rope as hard as he could slinging me back into the real world, where I fell onto the ground. Slowed by the strange physics of the shade, he reported it later as somewhat like an optical illusion. He didn't close his eyes, he didn't look away, but I went fuzzy, and then I was gone so seamlessly that he didn't realize what happened for several seconds. At that point, the tower didn't have cameras. The only interesting thing about the building was its proximity to a phenomenon that couldn't even be assessed yet, and security was assumed to be a waste of money. So I had the option to say nothing, and in all likelihood I would never be found out, but I wanted to go back in, and even in the short moment that I'd spend there, I could feel the air eating away at my protective outfit. Afterward, I'd seen the marks where the fabric had decayed. I knew that I'd need money and resources if I wanted to go back. I told the head scientist what I had discovered, and after two good hours of yelling, it was agreed that I would be the one to go back in the shade. Frankly, I think I was the only person who wanted the job. I could hear a person talking to me over the radio in my suit as soon as I fell through, but I couldn't respond. The first couple of moments are always disorienting, and I was too busy trying to remember my own sentience to parse the fast stream of words being thrown at me. I've been describing it with metaphors because it isn't just a physical place. I perceive it through thoughts just as much as I do through sight. But I think the closest thing on earth is the open ocean at night, when the sky and the sea merge together in the distance, and everything is completely dark, because the stars are covered by clouds. When I'm in the shade, I fall towards the horizon line forever, skimming over the waves and dipping my fingers into the water. Ben, the man on the radio said. Ben, come in. This is Miller. Talk to me. I'm not Ben, I giggled, the adrenaline rush making me giddy. I'm Agent Splat. There was a long moment of judgmental silence, and I cleared my throat awkwardly before Miller seemed to decide to just move on. Are you in the shade? he asked. Yeah, I said. To me, it felt like I was just floating, but I knew from the readings on my suit and tether that I was, in fact, falling. Very fast, and getting faster every second. Miller made a sound of approval. 
Okay, then release the mouse when you feel ready. I acknowledged him and unhooked the compartment from my belt. It was made out of clear glass so I could see the mouse inside, small and white-furred. The way it cowered against the floor of its cage made me feel slightly guilty. I'd had a couple pet mice as children, and I knew that something bad would happen when I opened the container, even if I didn't know exactly what it would be. Still, I had a job to do, so I pressed the button on the side and exposed the mouse to the shade. Instantly, its fur started to decay, flaking away from its body. When all the hair was gone, it was like the shadows around me reached out and sank into its skin. It squeaked in terror, black streaking across its skin like a lightning, the muscles under its skin bulging and contorting. I could see shadows in its breath every time it exhaled, its tiny chest heaving. It turned to look at me, its red eyes rimmed with the darkness of the shade and crumbled into dust. The dust billowed out and settled onto my gloved hands. Report, Miller asked, his voice uncharacteristically gentle. Are you hurt? My hands were shaking, sending up little plumes of dead mouse dust. I'm okay. The mouse... I... It's dead. Obviously, Miller said, his concern overwhelmed by irritation. We knew that would happen going in. Details, Ben. Right. I took a deep breath, which wasn't very grounding, considering the canned air I was breathing. Ah, it's sort of... Twisted, like its skin was the wrong shape for its organs. And then it dissolved. Miller said something else that I didn't hear, because I was staring at the black powder that used to be a mouse. I thought it was just on top of my suit, but now that I looked at it, it seemed to be embedded in it. No, not embedded, I realized. It was actually abrading the cloth, insinuating itself in the fibers, and it was still moving still trying to get to my skin. Pull me out now, I said, shaking my arms wildly because I couldn't think of anything else to do. Get me out of here, now! To his credit, Miller didn't ask questions. He just acted. Like in space, or the sea, it's easier to move things in the shade. The tether which would have snapped on Earth was more than sufficient to pull me back up. The process of leaving is very different from going in. Just the intention of exiting and the cessation of falling seems to be enough, with no regards to how far I actually fell into the shade. It only took a couple of seconds of the scientists back home pulling me up, with the tether for the world to shift again, but they were the longest seconds of my life. I could do nothing but wait as my suit got thinner and thinner, and then tore entirely, an instant before the world shifted again, and I was back on Earth. I curled into a ball on the ground getting dirt all over my suit and screaming from the pain. I spent three months in the hospital. The doctors had never seen injuries like mine before, and they had no idea how to treat me. The wounds were worst around my hands, where the air of the shade had entered, but they covered my entire body. They felt like burns, and they came with vertigo so severe I couldn't stand up, and waves of dark dread that traveled up from my fingertips. They looked like shadows shifting under my skin, but were strangely flat, like a tattoo. I was kept hydrated and given pain medicine that barely helped, but other than that, there wasn't anything that could be done for me. I just had to heal on my own, which I did, laboriously slowly. 
The shadows never went away entirely, but the pain did. Eventually, and they disappeared from everywhere except my hands, wrists, and fingers. It might be more accurate to say that they collected around my hands, pooling under my nails and making bracelets around my wrists. My hospital bills were all paid for, and in return I spent hours undergoing every test under the sun. They didn't exactly keep me prisoner, but they locked the door during the night. As soon as I could move on my own, I snuck out of my bed at midnight and wrapped my fists in blankets. Then I punched the window as hard as I could. I felt the impact of my arm, which was still shaky and weak, and the glass barely cracked, but I kept going. I was done with the shade. I wanted nothing else to do with it. The hospital was built under the assumption that people would want to stay inside, not run away, so it was easy enough to leave without being seen. I withdrew my meager amount of savings, covered my hands with long gloves, and got the cheapest train ticket I could find. I just wanted to get as far away as I could. The train thundered across dry dirt, over a small creek, around a mountain, and with every mile I felt safer. And soon enough the train went dark, all the other passengers settling down to sleep. I couldn't sleep, seized by the fear that if I closed my eyes, I'd end right back at that tower, staring over the edge and deciding to jump. My palms itched in my gloves, irritated by the coarse material. Looking out the train window at the endless, flat landscape that flew by almost as fast as I saw it, I could almost imagine I was looking out at the shade. As I thought that, I felt my fingers beginning to burn, a pale imitation of the way they'd felt on the day that the shade got into me. I rubbed my palms together and did my best to ignore it, but the burning kept getting worse and worse. Creeping past my wrists, towards my elbows, and after a quick look around to make sure that the other passengers were asleep, I finally gave in and peeled off my gloves. The shadows under my skin were swirling, more active than they had been in weeks. Then they actually pulled up off of me, becoming smoky three-dimensional tendrils instead of just laying flat. I tried to push them back in by flattening them against my thigh, but they just spread out in a halo around my hand, then popped right back up again when I moved it. They twisted around each other, forming a vaguely circular shape right above my hand. I felt a vertigo that had haunted me during my recovery, and then, with a pop, a mouse appeared in the center of my palm. Shrieking, I threw it across the room, and I swear it sent me a look of utter betrayal an instant before it faced out of existence again. By the time people started looking at me to figure out why I was screaming, the shadows were back to their usual state on my skin. Someone asked if I was okay. I nodded vaguely in their direction and huddled further down in my seat, wrapping my arms around myself. I was hoping that if I just got far enough away, it would all stop. And when the train ended, I got on a bus, then another train, eventually ending up in Brisbane. I got the first room for the night that I could, and decided that I was going to hide in the bed until the world stopped trying to kill me. When I woke up, the mouse was on the pillow next to me, fast asleep, and my shadows were retreating into my skin. Its fur was standing straight up, like it had been shocked with static electricity, and it was covered in the same shadows that I was. It's always been told that my curiosity is going to get me killed one day. I poked the mouse with my finger. It, 
predictably, bit me. Oh, screw you, I said, cradling my injury to my chest. The mouse closed its eyes and went back to sleep. The darn thing was still unfairly cute. I guess you need a name if you're going to keep showing up. The mouse didn't offer an opinion. After an extremely awkward glance, I discovered that she was female. How about Nibbles? You certainly like to bite. After watching Nibbles for long enough that I was sure she wasn't going to do anything interesting, I got up to take a shower. There wasn't anything else to do. When I came out of the bathroom, Nibbles was gone again. She kept showing up throughout the next few days. I spent them trying my best not to think too hard and get stuck in fear. And honestly, I started to look forward to her visits. She was a vicious little thing, but she was all so fluffy and warm. She made me feel less alone. Her favorite spot to nap was on my shoulder, cuddled up against my neck. She stayed longer each time, and the portal that formed with her arrival got bigger. I had fled away from the rip because I thought that if I left, I could just go back to a normal life. Obviously, that wasn't happening. And so on the eighth day since Nibble started appearing, I bought a burner phone and called Miller. It rang once, twice, three times. Just when I was starting to think that he wouldn't pick up, I heard the buzz of the line connecting. This is Andrew Miller. Speak. I sighed, long and silent. Hey, Miller. It's Ben. There's some stuff going on that I think y'all would be interested in. Where are you? I'm going to send a plane. He was back to his clipped and cold persona. Brisbane. I was cringing away from the phone like I was about to be called to the principal's office. How did you get to... Never mind. Just get to the airport. I'll text you instructions, he said. I wasn't ready to give up that easily. Hmm, I think you forgot the magic word. Pretty pleased with a cherry on top, he said, deadpan. I laughed and hung up on him. The plane, when it arrived, was tiny and slightly rusted, with only enough room for me, Miller, and the pilot. And by that, I mean just me and Miller, because Miller was the pilot. He gave me headphones that I could hear him through the ambient noise that such small planes always come with and then proceeded not to talk to me for the whole flight. Nibbles appeared 30 minutes into the flight. I was used to the whole routine by now, but Miller was so shocked he almost crashed. What the hell is that? he asked. I scooped her up in my arms. She's Nibbles. That does not answer my question. I rolled my eyes, which he didn't see because he was focused on flying the plane. The mouse you had me release in the shade? She's been visiting me. Miller glanced over again and his eyes widened. Does that usually happen? The shadows weren't going back into my skin like normal. Instead, they got bigger, twining around my arms. They brushed over my seat and the control panel in front of me, devouring everything they touched. Land the plane, I said. Now. He banked hard, sending me rattling against the wall and sent us toward the ground at full speed. My seatbelt dissolved and something important must have been destroyed because the plane started shaking. The door next to me, protecting me from the open air, was disappearing as I watched. Almost there, Miller murmured. The ground came into view. On a particularly hard jolt, the door finally fell away, and I went with it. I caught a glimpse of Miller reaching out for me, panic in his eyes, and then the only thing I could see was the sky. Freefall. Twelve seconds. So much time to think, but my mind was empty. I closed my eyes before I could hit the ground. The shade opened around me, 
and crawled into my pores. I waited to die. I expected to die. Or at the very least to experience the same burning pain. But a moment passed, then another. And when I finally peeled open my eyes, I was still alive, hurtling through the shade with no tether. I fell for a meaningless amount of time. I got thirsty, then hungry, but never to the point of pain or death. I got lost in the falling. When the first image came, I thought it was a mirage, but then it happened again. There were just flashes, snapshots of other worlds, crystal trees, burning air, dinosaurs that talked like humans, a civilization on the brink of collapse, another just beginning to grow. Fields of animals grown like wheat, a wall bisecting the earth, colonization of the universe by a race of lizards, wastelands and paradises, all connected by the shade. I was crying, sobbing with my eyes wide open. And just when I thought I couldn't take any more, it ended. I landed at the foot of the tower unharmed. I don't think this is where it ends, though, or at least it doesn't have to end here. Nibbles just appeared, and this time the portal she came through isn't closing, and it's bigger than ever. Big enough that I could fit through it, if I crouched. I've always been filled with wanderlust, always been a bit of an adrenaline junkie. It's what drove me to jump off the tower in the first place. My mom called it suicidal curiosity and lack of regard for my own fool self. She may have been right, but the shade chose me. For some reason, and after I finish writing this, I'm going to walk through that portal. And then? I guess I'll see how far I can fall. Well, that's it for this story. I really hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you did, like the video, leave a comment. If you want to be super cool, you could subscribe. And if you want to go beyond that and support this channel financially, there are YouTube memberships and a Patreon. I don't have much to offer other than my thanks. I just really hope you know that I appreciate it. No matter what you do, liking, subscribing, commenting, becoming a member, it's very much appreciated. I guess that's about it. If you want to join our Discord and come hang out, you can. It's really chill. Not a lot going on, so don't expect to be bombarded with messages. With all that said, I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Guess I'll see you in the next one.